and welcome to episode 157 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, how you doing, my friend? How Are things better than last week in Chicago? Is it, is it, is it sunny and beautiful? Is it ever? <laughs> it got warmer. It got warmer this week. But now everyone but me is sick in my house. So oh, I'm no. just like carrying a child while bringing tissues to my wife. Do you have like one of those those uh, snot evacuators for your for your uh, your child? Nose Frida, please. Name brand here. Nose Frida, get at us. Dude, I have sucked out so much saliva <laughs> out of my child's face. It's amazing. He's gotten oh, used dear. to it, but he, he like rolls his eyes back in his head while I do it. <laughs> Very funny. Is that good or bad? He doesn't seem to mind. He's like seeing through the eternities in Dune or something. <laughs> also, that's the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Hey, it's my birthday, everybody. Hey. Did you know that? 43 yeah. years young. Oh my this God. This week, this Monday. The elder uh, statesman. I heard there's something special under the birthday tree for me this week, though, Stan. There sure is. Joining us just for you, Dave, all the way from beautiful, sunny, warm, metric system Canada, it's the very esteemed Dominic Harvey. Dom, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Happy birthday, Dave. Thanks so much. Dom, it's awesome to have you on. I don't know if uh, warm is quite the descriptor I would use for Canada at the moment, but uh, most of that is on point. We'll, we'll run with the rest of it. What part of Canada do you live in, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, so I'm in Toronto. I'm just on the East Coast. Uh, so we get some of that upper Northeast US kind of weather, but taken to the extreme. Yeah, I recently heard Zach Manasimble Ryle announce on his podcast that he's temporarily leaving Toronto to go work on some cruise ships. Which does this mean, Dom? You're now going to be the de facto best player in Toronto for the next six months. Best podcaster in Toronto, too. Maybe you know, <laughs> I'm trying to reclaim all of those titles here. Yeah, excellent. On this week's show, we're breaking down the most popular and most successful decks in Pioneer with the help of one of the format's strongest current competitors. That's that's what Dom is here for. It's definitely not Dave or Shane. Oh, really? Now. I do have a question, Stan. Not three weeks ago, <laughs> we told people we were not going to do any coverage of Pioneer in <laughs> any time coming up. What what changed, Stan? What what did you feel like? Why did we have this uh, abrupt about face on my birthday, no less? Yeah, exactly. First of all, I did leave open a back door when I said we may consider doing other formats in the event of certain events, and in this case, the Mana Traders. Format of the month for their tournament series is Pioneer in January. So in light of the Pioneer qualifiers going on right now, we wanted to look at the format at large, maybe do a little bit of a crash course for anyone who's competing in this free and awesome tournament with one of our sponsors. How much longer do I have to qualify? Because based off of my, the games I played on Magic Online this week, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and win this whole thing. Because I, it felt great. I'm number one. Dom is number one. We know we established that, but the Swiss lasts until the 25th. So you just get to get seven out of your first ten matches, and then you're in. Well, I'm there, baby. But not unfortunately, I was not playing with mana traders. I was just playing on the leagues. All right. So what we're going to try to do today is take a look at what archetypes are dominating the highest levels of play. We got a pivot table all ready to go. We're going to talk about how to approach the format with aggro decks with mid-range decks, and combo decks, and also 
the other one, control decks. And we're going to try to consider as well what gives Pioneer its unique identity these days, and maybe even what is responsible for some of this Pioneer resurgence that's happening in the magic Twitterverse. But before all that, let's do some quick housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Kyle F., Jason R.K., and Jonathan R. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We also got a new review on Apple from Casual Coffee, who referred to us as the best Bluetron pod on the net, <laughs> a deck we have, have we literally ever? never played or really even talked about in, in any detail. Yeah, I don't think we have, I don't think we, I think we have only mentioned it in like li- results lists. I don't think we've ever even played it for like any kind of even intra episode discussion. Dom, you ever touch a Bluetron deck? Yeah, I was, so when I was getting into modern back in 2011, 2012, Blue White Tron was my jam. I loved that deck, played it religiously. It does not age well. And so the fact that someone is still, uh, Fighting the good fight with uh, good old Bluetron, no no white cards involved in uh, the year of our law 2022. It's, uh, you know, you, you love to see it. Got a root for that person, uh, whoever they are. We also went from about 29 uh, five-star reviews on Spotify to 78 since the episode dropped last Thursday. So that is awesome. Thank you, Spotify listeners, for heeding the call. Um, makes me feel really good about myself, which is the most important thing, but also I think helps probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe people find it better if there's more stars. I don't know. Just keep throwing some stars on there. Go to six stars. We also, of course, are brought to you and supported by our Patreon, patreon.com slash the dive down. Thanks to all of you who are already members. Most important thing, a buck a week gets you into the definitively discreet dive down discord. Uh, where we are always chatting about every format, including Pioneer right now, which is important. And also, I'm just going to keep rolling with all the plugs. Manatraders, manatraders.com. Use sign up code THEDIVEDOWN2022. Gets you 15% off your first two months of that awesome rental service, which I again was reminded has every card I could ever want because I did play Pioneer this week. Man, Pioneer decks are so cheap compared to modern. It's absurd. Yeah. I, I mean, mine was still, I was still surprised that mine was 385 tickets because any card released after Arena is still like a base price of 25 tickets, it seems like. It's an inflation rate I keep hearing about on the news, on cable news. The, the Magic Online economy, you could do a whole PhD thesis or whatever about that in itself. It's a whole fascinating little ecosystem uh but yeah anyone who has tried to buy into modern manually without going through a rental service i think has experienced the the trials and tribulations uh especially with uh modern horizons 2 and i think that's part of the reason that pioneer is getting this renewed attention both online and in paper is it's just so cheap like i've been uh trying to think of good uses for some of my store credit that I have at various places. And it's, well, I, I could get a set of solitudes for modern and, uh, you know, drain my entire balance that way. Or I could just buy an entire Pioneer deck and have some spare change left over. And that's, uh, you know, uh, the, the second choice there is looking more and more appealing by the day. Yeah, but then you'd have to own bad cards. Maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll save that for the dive. I have so many of them already. <laughs> it's true. Dave, we do have one more sponsor, though, right? That's right. Uh, if you remember, we've been talking a lot about grooming and fragrances lately here on the Dive Down. And so if you could, please 
check out our newest sponsor, Barrister and Man, barristerandman.com. It's M-A-N-N to uh, tap into some of the most luxurious self-care and grooming products that you can find on the internet from one of the members of our community, our good friend, Will. I, I got to say, as soon as I logged in and I saw Shane's beautiful glowing cheeks, Shane, did you wet shave today? <laughs> uh, yesterday, it felt very luxurious. But I do want to say, we have been talking up the quality of the Barrister and Man products, but I also think they're like surprisingly economically priced. Like They're not really that expensive for what you're getting. I know he hand makes this stuff. Like he's, He posts photos on his Instagram where he's like mixing up actual batches of product. And it's like, man, this looks like this is surprising amounts of labor. And this is like, this is handcrafted stuff in the US. So it's pretty dope. Uh, you're getting it handmade and that's pretty awesome. So yeah, head on over to Barrister and Man and use code the dive down 2022 for 15% off your first order. All right, with all that out of the way, we're going to do things a little bit differently on this week's episode. We're not actually starting with a breakdown because we just didn't think it made a ton of sense to do a modern breakdown in an episode all about Pioneer or to jump straight into Pioneer tournament results for a format that we essentially haven't talked about in what feels like a year or two or or ever. So instead, we're going to hop right into the dive down and start looking at this format and this metagame. And as part of that, we'll have some breakdown-esque elements, including what I've put together, which is a comprehensive analysis of all of the high-level pioneer tournaments that have taken place on Moto in January of this year which is so far actually six different events. And those are four different challenges, a super qualifier, which happened just this weekend, and a PTQ, which Dom won. So who better to speak to that particular tournament than the person who spiked the whole thing? Before we get into all that as well, I want to mention that for this uh, analysis, I'm only looking at top eights. I wasn't necessarily looking at complete deck, most popular deck breakdowns, because the data source I use, MTG Goldfish, maybe you've heard of it, their naming conventions for Pioneer are not good. And when you go to the Pioneer metagame page, it's just a bunch of decks listed by their colors. And as a result, I would have had to manually identify, you know, 32 times six number of decks. You do the math. So instead, I just looked at the top eight deck lists. I organized those manually, and then I looked at their top cards from each tournament report. So that's what we're going to talk about to start. We're going to look at top eight deck lists from these six tournaments, as well as top creatures, top spells, and overall top cards from each tournament. Dave or Shane, or or Dom, any questions? No, it makes perfect sense, Dan. Good work. Thank you. All right. So let's just look at the top decks among top eights from these six tournaments. The most popular deck that appeared seven times was Is It Phoenix. Remember Is It Phoenix, guys? Every week we remember it. We issue some kind of remembrance about it. It had seven copies. We're not going to go into too much details exactly about how this deck is built just yet. Just want to point out that this is arguably the most popular one. Dom, I have a question for you, though. Does that check out with your experiences playing within this format? Because you're playing Pioneer outside of just that one PTQ you won. You won a challenge last month. I think you're playing other tournaments beyond that. Is Phoenix the type of deck you absolutely have to be prepared for when you enter a tournament 
in this format? Yeah, I would say Phoenix is uh, the the go-to best deck. Uh, so the, the format has been actually evolving quite quickly over the past few weeks. So going back to when I won the PCQ two weeks ago now, that feels like an eternity ago. So much has changed since then. Uh, and then going back to before Pioneer was getting this renewed attention uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, the one constant throughout all of that time is is it Phoenix is the consensus best deck and usually the most popular deck as well. Uh, and certainly if you're playing in any of the, you know, the Pioneer Challenges or Magic Online, for example, you should expect to to face Phoenix several times and you, you need to beat it in order to, uh, to win the tournament. So yeah, I, I would say that you, uh, maybe you should just be playing Phoenix yourself. It's uh, really hard to go wrong with that. Uh, but if you're not, you need to have a good plan for that matchup. Yeah, I feel like when, when I see Is It Phoenix doing so well, in all these pioneer events, I'm, I'm wondering why it's not the most popular format in the game, because <laughs> based on everything I've heard in the historic and the modern community is that all we want to do is get Phoenix back out of the graveyard. So I don't know what the heck's going on. Yeah, I know that uh, when Aspiring Spike had that Jeskai Phoenix deck with Faithful Mending and so on, People really wanted that deck to be good, and it didn't quite stand the test of time, but I- I'm sure people will take any excuse to revisit that because people love that archetype, and maybe that's one of the arguments for Pioneers. If, if that's something you really enjoy doing, this is a format where you get to do that uh, once more. Not only that, but you get to put, play Treasure Cruise in it. I will say, have to admit, I mentioned when when uh, Everett played that Jeskai Phoenix deck, I did run out and buy four Demi-Lich immediately afterwards, but that's a story for another episode of the show. <laughs> Stan... How how quickly do those demoliches depreciate in value, Dave? As soon as you drove not, off the lot, it's not pretty. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's down to fifty percent as soon as I took it off the lot. They were like, nobody wants to use demolich. We want a hemilich, you know. <laughs> yeah, Shane. I think the reason the reason why maybe is it Phoenix and Pioneer isn't quite as popular as on other formats is because I don't think putting Phoenixes in the graveyard is as fun in Pioneer as it is in formats that actually have faithless looting and thought scour. You know, charter course and lightning axe don't hit quite the same. You know what? I feel like backtracking on what I just said a couple of minutes ago. And as long as we're on the topic, let's just talk about these decks in a little bit more detail because Dom, you're already saying stuff that makes me kind of interested, which is a, why do you think Phoenix is the best deck considering the makeup of the deck here is substantively different than the way it looks in historic and, you know, arguably pretty different than it did back in the day in modern when, that was a Faithless Luthing, Manamorphos, Thoughtscour deck. Why do you think Phoenix has more legs in Pioneer? And like, how much of that has to do with the fact that we just get to play with Treasure Cruise as well? I, well, I do think you touch on something really important there, which is uh, Phoenix in some form has been the best deck in Modern, the best deck in Historic, and the best deck in Pioneer. But all of those incarnations look a little bit different. And applying the same heuristics to each of them, I think it's going to maybe lead you in the, in the wrong direction sometimes so i think you have to take each of those versions for what it is and the pioneer version exists in this context where if you look at most of these uh, pioneer decks they have some powerful things that they're doing but there is a bit of a gap between uh their best draws and their average draws so maybe they have one or two flagship cards which are so much better than the rest or uh you know if you think about how these decks play out there are certain cards that you're more scared of uh, from the other side, but most of them don't really have the redundancy on those effects or good ways to filter through cards and, and tie the room together to enable those best draws more consistently, whereas Phoenix does. Phoenix is 
Maybe the most consistent deck in the entire format are just doing the same thing basically in every game. And then also you have this subset of nut draws powered by a thing in the ice or sometimes if you're able to get multiple phoenixes in the graveyard quickly, then uh, you can get some really fast starts involving that. And so that gives you a fast draw that can compete with anything that's going on in the format but then also you can assemble that draw more consistently because you have Consider and Opt and Expressive Iteration, crucially. That was the card that really helped power the deck uh, and help it rise from the ashes again. And then your your choice of Treasure Cruise, Pieces of the Puzzle, uh, whatever it is, Is It Charm, uh, you can just sift through so many cards that uh, you can find the cards that are central to your deck. You, you can find the namesake in Arclight Phoenix, but then also in, in Cyborg Games, crucially, you know, uh, Lotus Field, for example, is a pretty rough matchup for Phoenix in game one. But if you have, let's say, two copies of Alpine Moon in your sideboard, you find those so much more consistently than any other deck can find their own sideboard cards. And so uh, you really get to build a cohesive deck and use every part of it uh, to its full potential. One thing I felt when I faced down Phoenix a few times in my testing this week is that I feel like one of the reasons that phoenix did so well in modern is just what you said in the in the the finding your important tech pieces and sideboard pieces like phoenix has always been really good at doing that and i also think at that point in time thing in the ice was a really powerful tool for like the creature upheaval effect and i feel like in pioneer and we'll talk i think about the nuances of pioneer versus modern pioneer is so often a board centric format that thing in the ice does so much work if it remains on the board training length of time and then you untap with it and cast some spells and then you have a gigantic creature attacking in and all of your opponent's board development is is gone to the wind. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at some of the most dominant uh, blue decks across various constructed formats throughout history, one thing that a lot of them have in common is they have this cheap threat often it's a two drop like a you know stoneforge mystic would be a classic example uh jace fringe prodigy uh, something in, in that kind of space where uh you almost need to keep in removal that's otherwise bad against the rest of the deck just to respect that threat and if they land that threat on turn two that warps the entire shape of the rest of the game around that card um and in my experience, trying a bunch of these various uh, creature decks in Pioneer, you can actually slog through the removal in Is It Phoenix a decent amount of the time, but just the card thing in the ice. If you can't interact with that card, then as soon as that flips, it slides out, basically. Um, and as you alluded to, and it's uh, an astute uh, observation, Pioneer is much more of a battlefield-centric format than some uh, others have been, and that's part of why with this backdrop of Phoenix being so dominant, the PTQ that I won, Jeskai Ascendancy and Lotus Field both had uh, a great tournament there, in part because they uh, they don't have to care that much about Thing in the Ice, and in general, um, they can shrug off all of the, the removal from Iza Phoenix, and they can do their thing faster than, than Phoenix can goldfish uh, on average. Yeah. Unlike the historic version of this deck, though, because Pioneer has Thing in the Ice in particular... Do you feel like Thing in the Ice is as easy and consistent to flip in a format that doesn't have Manamorphose especially to produce both a trigger and mana and a cantrip for the Thing in the Ice effect? Because back in the modern days, one of the things that made, you know, OG is it Phoenix so powerful was that Thing in the Ice would just flip on turn three. 
And sometimes it would flip mm-hmm. on turn three and produce birds in the process, and you would be swinging for 10 or more damage just out of nowhere. And I get the sense that even though, you know, with Opt and and Consider now, you do have a lot of good one-mana cantrips, I don't necessarily get the sense that Thing in the Ice is as turboed as it used to be in, in more powerful formats. Certainly. And in modern, you also had the Phyrexian mana cards like uh, Surgical Extraction, Gutshot, uh, Noctua Survival even. And so, yeah, it was a very realistic prospect that if they played Thing in the Ice on turn two, it was going to flip on turn three. In Pioneer, that is not possible. There are no free spells uh, like that. And so the earliest that Phoenix uh, or the Thing can flip, excuse me, is on turn four. And so being aware of that dynamic really informs how you play against a deck, where sometimes you you just want to develop your own board, leave the thing in play, knowing that there is a a cap on how quickly that thing can actually transform and, and reset all of the hard work you've done. So last question on Phoenix before we move on down the meta list that uh, Stan so hopefully put together. What is up, Dom, with the deck lists that play Temporal Trespass and No Treasure Cruise? Can you help me understand a little bit how someone could come to the conclusion that they don't want to play Treasure Cruise? Yeah, so this is a really fascinating development uh, from the brain of one uh, Daniel Gershaw, a.k.a. Goldicat, who you will see all over these uh, MTG Goldfish results for Pioneer and also for other formats as well. And I think this came from the realization that when your deck already has uh, eight of Consider plus Opt, you have Iteration, you have uh, pieces of the puzzle in Daniel's list, you know, some lists have Charter Course and so on. You have so many ways of uh, sifting through cards and having cards replace themselves that there are pretty severe diminishing returns on those effects. And what you don't want to be doing is you have a bunch of mana and you spend it all just uh, turning cards into more cards, but you don't actually get anywhere. Because uh, if you're bringing back Phoenixes in the process, then that, that does get you uh, it does get you somewhere. Uh, but you want to be developing your own game plan at the same time. And Temporal Trespass is a way to convert that kind of uh, wheel spinning into something meaningful. Uh, you know, the, the most unique resource you can take in Magic is an extra turn, and especially if that's uh, backing up a, a Phoenix that you already have, that's like another set of attacks with that. Or if you've transformed a thing in the ice, then one Trespass is effectively lethal. And if you pair it with Galvanic Iteration, which is the end game for, uh, for these lists, then taking two additional turns, you can find a way to finagle a win out of that uh, w- without too much trouble. And so... Um, when you play against these versions, and this is a crucial thing to be aware of, is looking for the telltale signs that you are against one of these lists as opposed to the more traditional uh, Treasure Cruise version. Uh, and so Galvanic Iteration is a good sign of that. That's usually only coming along with Temporal Trespass. Uh, other cards like uh, Stern Dismissal, which you don't often see in the in the classic list, uh, and there are some mana-based differences as well, usually. Um, when you play against this version... There's this looming sense of dread whenever they have a bunch of cards in their graveyard and open mana because you could almost shrug off a treasure cruise. You know, they have five cards in hand. What's three more at that point? Whereas if they have Trespass, well, suddenly they can just do whatever they want and you're sat there just, uh, you know, tapping your thumbs, twiddling your thumbs, just hoping that you get to untap again, which is uh, not always a guarantee. That's so funny. I mean, I, I, it's funny. You think about Pioneer as being, and we'll talk about it much more Overall, but we talk about pioneers being a less uh, lower power format, right? But one of the best things you can do in this format, and one of the best decks is fork a time walk. I think is pretty 
pretty funny. <laughs> right. And so in the context of recent standard formats, you have a galvanic iteration with Aaron's epiphany being like a defining interaction there. And people have tried that exact combo in uh, Historic and also Pioneer as well. And it turns out that just replicating that in the context of the existing best deck is actually the best way to, to harness that uh, idea. But it, it is... Uh, an interesting sign that Treasure Cruise almost feels replaceable in the Phoenix deck. It's, it's a sign of how far things have come because when Pioneer was first announced, I think almost everyone's immediate response was, well, Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time are going to be two of the best cards in this new format. And it was a good case study in how much worse do those cards become when the format is less efficient on the whole and when you don't have fetch lands, crucially, just adding at least one, often more, cards to your graveyard for free over the course of the average game. And it turned out those cards are still still pretty good. <laughs> you know, we saw uh, Inverter, where Dig Through Time really was uh, the backbone of that deck, uh, and almost a combo piece, weirdly, at the same time. And then Treasure Cruise in both Phoenix and Jeskai Ascendancy, which I'm sure we'll come on to, uh, that's really one of the flagship cards of those decks. But Phoenix has almost evolved to the point where it doesn't even need that card anymore. And so... If we woke up tomorrow and Treasure Cruise is banned, I think Phoenix would still be the best deck. And uh, I think the the Trespass list maybe is the best version of the best deck. And so I, I don't know if much will change, honestly. Well, speaking of Jeskai Ascendancy, that is the next deck on the list that Stan put together. Stan, you want to talk a little bit about this this deck, what what's in it? I mean, Shane, you remember playing cons with, with Jeskai Ascendancy when people, when people broke that. Um, it's always oh, been sure. kind of a looming threat in modern sort of it's not really powerful enough for modern but there's always people who are like yeah, maybe there's like an, a non-interactive combo that we can do with jeskai ascendancy but here it is in pioneer and suddenly it's kind of the second most popular deck right now yeah th this deck weirdly is not playing a, a goblin token making uh spell though yeah it's not <laughs> you mean like called? in standard yeah this is not this is not the jeskai ascendancy decks of of ktk standard unfortunately yeah. Stoke the Flames is the card yeah, that I was always my, looking where's for. Where's my Stoke the Flames? Don't need it. Yeah, that, that was a, a much more wholesome form of magic. You know, uh, cast my Holding Outburst and then cast a Stoke the Flames for free, untap my goblins, do it again. Uh, that felt quite satisfying in a way that this deck actually does not sometimes, where this is a much more, it's not deterministic, strictly speaking, but usually once you're going off, you know, you, you can uh, stitch it together from there. With the Ascendancy decks in Standard, it was much more of, well, I actually have to do the math here and <laughs> work out how much damage I can assemble over the course of a turn. But then also, you did have the the strict combo version of that deck with, like, Retraction Helix and Briber's Purse, I think, was the card. And, uh, yeah, th th this is a much uh, cleaner version of that, I guess you would say. Yeah, so what's this deck actually trying to do? So the, the basic concept here is you have Jeskai Ascendancy. So this is a blue-white-red enchantment. Uh, and whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you can draw a card and then discard a card. And then, crucially, you can also untap all of your creatures and they get plus one, plus one until end of turn. And you can either use this with mana creatures, like Sylvan Caryatid is uh, the main one here, or Paradise Druid in, in some lists. I had Feyborough Elder in my, uh, in my PTQ list, which uh, is a... Maybe like the 35th best card from Throne of Eldraine, uh, but uh, kind of pairs really nicely with the Ascendancy because you have four colors of mana when you have both of those in play, and so you really get to just chain spells together. Um, but when you have Ascendancy and a mana producer, you can chain together these cantrips, like consider, opt, treasure cruise, tear through your deck. 
if you have either multiple ascendancies or multiple mana creatures, you're netting mana in the process. And so when you're going up on mana and you have this amazing card selection at the same time, then you just tear through your deck and it's uh, almost guaranteed that you can uh, put a win together. But the real one-two punch here, the, the splinter twin of this deck, if you will, is Sylvan Awakening. So this is a, a two and a green sorcery from Dominaria, which turns all of your lands into indestructible, hasty tutus with reach, don't forget about that, um, until your next turn. And so let's say you have four lands in play, uh, a common sequence is you cast Ascendancy on turn three, on turn four you cast Sylvan Awakening, you animate your four lands, you cast a one drop, uh, which triggers Ascendancy, that untaps your lands, and now each spell you play is generating three or more mana, and then once you have all of your lands growing to three threes and then four fours and five fives, that becomes lethal pretty quickly. You can just go to combat and attack and you don't actually need to chain too many spells together to get across the finish line there. I have so many questions about this deck in particular. For one, this is the deck you piloted for your PTQ win. Is, is this what you also won the challenge with a month ago? No, that, that was with the, the Jund, uh, Bolas Citadel sacrifice deck with Collected Company and Mayhem Devil, Woe Strider, uh, that kind of thing. But we'll touch on that one in passing. I have a real soft spot for that deck. Um, but the story with Ascendancy is actually pretty interesting because um, this was another interaction which in those very early days of Pioneer, people highlighted as a possibility, never really came together. I think it was mostly overshadowed by other more powerful things and then it would also get caught in the crossfire from some of the stuff that was attacking those. Uh, but after that big uh, reset last year, you know, the, the big round of bans, um, and we had to kind of rediscover the format from scratch, uh, this was something which uh, you know, keen observers of the format realized might be good again. And the crucial thing there was they were approaching this as there's not really a good Omnath deck at the moment. So what if you play just an Omnath deck with a bunch of uh, you know, treasure cruises and expressive iterations and so on? And once we're doing that, this just becomes uh, a nice, convenient way to to actually win the game that also dodges a lot of the, the common interaction in the format. And the crucial step that I took uh, in re, uh, reimagining the deck uh, for my PTQ win was realizing that that kind of fair game plan of just ramping into Omnath wasn't actually that good in the format at large at the moment without the proper support. And what I wanted to be instead was just this dedicated combo deck, you know, for Sylphan Awakening, um, a bunch of uh, cheap cantrips, cheap interaction. Once you count Omnath, then your mana base improves because you don't need to play Fable Passage. Um, and you also don't need to play Grow Spiral, which is hard to cast in your deck, which is fairly light on lands. Um, and it, it's two mana, which is a lot worse than one for the sake of uh, Just Guy Ascendancy. And so once you remove that one block, well, then that leads to this cascade of other changes in the deck that end up in it being this much more just sleek and robust uh, combo deck. You don't have this backup plan, at least in the main decks. You are more one-dimensional. But on the other hand, you're more focused because you're more one-dimensional. And so that's the, the trade-off you're making there. Playing against this deck a couple times, one of the things that really struck me was that frequently the deck, especially in game one, will just tap out for Just Guy Ascendancy because it's so important to your combo and, and how you win, especially if you're not playing Omnath, that on turn three you kind of play you know like part one of the combo and then turn four in my mind the deck just kind of storms off because at that point you play a civil awakening to turn all of your creatures into lands 
or all, or all your lands into creatures that also untap. And then you just start chaining cantrips. And uh, Jeskai Ascendancy, for those who are unfamiliar as well, it lets you loot every time you cast a non-creature spell. So you're not only just chaining cantrips, you're pitching dead cards for what's ostensibly more instants or sorceries or other non-creature spells. And it felt to me very much like, A, this deck needs to cast, what is it, like five or six spells, if that, to just kind of win on the spot. And because of the looting ability on Jeskai Ascendancy, it seems really hard to fizzle out. And is is that kind of the nature of the deck, especially when you've executed the pilot or the 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 combo? Is it pretty much deterministic every time, or can it actually fizzle out um, if you don't actually have enough cantrips or other non-creature spells in your hand to to go off, so to speak? That can depend on exactly how you're going off. If you start the combo turn with the Sylphan Awakening, you only need a few more spells from there, sometimes just one or two more spells from there. And at that point, it's it's pretty hard to fizzle. What can happen sometimes is you don't have the Awakening yet and you're frantically digging for it. And so you're having to cycle through a bunch of these spells. And depending on what your setup is like, you know, do you have at least one Sylvan Chariot or, or Paradise Druid? You, you might be running out of mana as well. So there's a lot of uh, balls that you have to juggle and keep in the air at the same time in those situations. One aspect of that actually is th- this is a Gigantha deck. Uh, I'm sure we'll come on to the role of companions in the format at large a little bit later on. Uh, but when you have uh, a Loras deck or a Yorion deck, though, those being by far the, the most common two, you're excited to have those as your companion and maybe you make some card choices as a nod to those. With Gigantha, th- there are a lot of Gigantha decks where you play it because, well, why not, right? Like it doesn't really clash with anything in my deck and so... I have this theoretical free card, but you're not that excited about it. In this deck, this is maybe the first deck I played where you are really excited about Gigantha because sometimes you just cast it as a 5-5 and that helps to either win the game or to to buy you enough time. And then in conjunction with Ascendancy, this is a really, really big Sylvan Chariot, in a sense. that um, This is a mana creature that you can develop with enough time. And then the hidden mode on Gigantha is... With the the nerf to companions, Gigantha is almost better in some cases in this deck because just having an extra card in your hand that you can loot away to Ascendancy comes up a lot when you're chaining these spells together because the crucial thing with Ascendancy is it allows you to see a bunch of cards, but you're not going up on cards. Uh, you're drawing and then discarding. So if you had three cards in hand before, you have three cards in hand now. Um, so... What really matters is having ways to go up on cards. And that's why, more so than anything else, Expressive Iteration is the card that really helped this deck to become possible because uh, this is something which is a very good setup spell in the early turns when you're digging for the Ascendancy or you're just trying to, to, to get some resources together. But then when you're going off, this puts you up on cards. And if Iteration is finding two spells, well, then that's all the action you need to see you through for the rest of the turn, which hopefully is the rest of the game as well. Is it Storm or is it Twin? Or is it a whole other combo deck altogether? I I think it's more like Twin. Um, You you do have some games where you just play an Ascendancy on turn three. Uh, This comes up more often in uh, post-cyborg games, actually, where both players are... They have more interaction, and so the games tend to be slower and more grindy. You play an Ascendancy, and then you end up playing an almost control-style game for the next few turns. You're removing that creature, you're, you're cycling through some cards, and Ascendancy almost is 
is almost like a planeswalker in a control deck. It's the thing that gets you this continual advantage uh, turn by turn. And then eventually you reach the point where you've you've seen half your deck and you're, you're going to find the awakening at some point. That's just a, a mathematical inevitability. Awesome. And now for something completely different. <laughs> the third the third deck on Stan's list is red, white, aggro. Dave, your baby. Is this is this feather? This is feather, am I, man. Am I looking at feather it's without feather? feather it's heroic, dog. This was the deck that I really liked playing our first go round in Pioneer. Always felt like it was kind of like just barely there, top of the top ish of the meta right now. Is that real, Dom? Like, is this a deck that's that popular that gets results, or is it just a deck that people are comfortable picking up? Uh, th- this is, I would say, the hottest deck in Pioneer at the moment. Um, so we had the the Pioneer uh, qualifier this. Uh, just this past weekend where it was either a heroic mirror in the finals or there were like, oh, that that was the previous challenge, but there were several heroic decks also in this top eight. And then looking down the top 16, top 32, this was one of the most popular decks. And it's a good illustration of how fast things can change in Pioneer and the the information cascades that are possible um, where this deck was nowhere to be seen as of two or three weeks ago. And then after it had this this breakout finish, well, then people picked it up for the next tournament, did very well there, and then that just kept compounding on itself to the point now where this is, maybe more so than Phoenix, actually, this is a litmus test uh, for a deck that you really need to have a good plan against. And uh, I'll call this heroic because, you know, that, that's how I look back on it from you know my time in Cards of Tarkir and so on. Same, but same, yeah. Heroic, prowess, whatever you call it. You actually have the new Legionnaire now from War of the Spark, which is like a fake heroic card. <laughs> Doesn't have the word on it, but it's the, the same kind of play pattern there. Um, but this deck is so good at punishing any kind of inefficiency in deck building, or if you stumble in the game, then you can just be dead before you know it. And so um, you get a lot of free wins with this deck, and it's kind of terrifying to to face it down, where uh, they untap with a creature or two and a few cards in hand, and you don't know, am I just going to die this turn? Uh, even if I have a removal spell, is one removal spell going to be good enough? That's not a sure thing. Uh, they have ways to fight through that too. So yeah, a really scary deck, really fast, consistent deck, and... Um, the, the the one thing which I think moved the needle there is this very innocuous common from Crimson Vow, and that's Ancestral Anger. So this is uh, red for a sorcery. Uh, target creature you control gets Trample and plus X plus zero until end of turn where X is one. So it always counts itself. And then the number of copies of this card in your graveyard, and then you draw a card. Um, so one issue with the heroic decks in the past has always been well, you can get some some triggers stacked up, but then you're kind of out of cards and then you, you need ways to keep the action flowing. So any one mana trick that replaces itself automatically gets an audition for the deck and you see Defiant Strike actually in, in these lists uh, as well. But then Ancestral Anger, once you've made this big thing, you need to get it through any blockers that might be on your way. And so it does that as well. And then sometimes you get those draws where you have several copies of this card and your thing just balloons out of proportion uh, very quickly. If you have Dreadhorde Arcanist in the mix, then you're flashing back one of those and your thing gets even bigger. So um, that that enables uh, some of these really extreme starts from the deck. And so when you look over the spoiler for Crimson Vow, this isn't a card that jumps out at you, right? It feels like this is a pretty weak set on the whole and this this card is not going to be a part of its impact on Constructed. And yet... 
it's a good example of how you really can't take any of that for granted because this this one common tucked away in the spoiler can can really be a big game changer. Yeah, I definitely have Google News alerts set up for single red cards that say draw a card on them. Every time it pops up, I'm looking at Warlord's Fury, Crash Through. When this card popped up, I there were some people in the Slack and, and me. So I play a lot of prowess in, in modern or to have historically. And so I was even like, this card might be able to get there in modern because it's got the, the you know, adds more power and it's draw a card. It didn't really get there in modern, you know, the other card, I forget the name of the card that draws, that does uh, light up the stage, you know, without having to do damage. That's the one that's gotten some play in modern. But I'm, I'm super excited to see this make an impact here in, in Pioneer for sure. Um, this looks like it's just a deck that is awesome at using, having Luris as its backup plan too. Right. And so this is the first one deck we've seen with Luris and Pioneer yet. I'm sure it's not the only one, but right now maybe it's the most popular one at the moment. Yeah. You saw this also with the uh the Auras decks, uh both black, white, and blue white, the had Luris as well, where the entire premise of your deck is I'm gonna get some cheap creatures into play and load them up and make them massive. If you don't have the removal spell, then you're you're gonna die pretty quick. If you do, you have to use it on my cheap creature. And that opens the door for Lurus potentially to go uncontested and then just bring all of that stuff back and, and make you deal with this, this second wave again. Uh, so yeah, Lurus goes very nicely in these decks. We had this uh, faint out of sorts last year with Strixhaven, where I actually thought that set was going to be uh, a big deal for this archetype. You had a bunch of these um, like Magecraft cards, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and some cheap spells to go with them. And then... Some other cards trickling in from other sets. So there's a Homestead Courage and a Angel Fire Ignition from Innistrad. These like flashback tricks, which uh, can help to address that issue I mentioned before. Neither of those really made a mark, but uh, Ancestral Anger uh, turned out to be just what uh, the Doctor ordered here. Awesome. I yeah, definitely. I'm going to go back and try this one in the queues, but you know me, I love to cast Monastery Swift Spear. Is this the closest example in Pioneer to a tempo deck that relies heavily on basically one-drop threats and surround them with like protection spells? It doesn't really run a lot of removal, at least not in the main deck. But It runs Reckless Rage, which is a very good removal spell in Pioneer and has been the whole time and has always been a part of this particular deck. Sure, but deck. like, I, you know, I'm looking at things like Gird for Battle and God's Willing as a way <laughs> to kind of like make your creatures survive direct damage or just any kind of spot removal. Yeah. I, I was, that was one of the things I was really looking for in the format as I was trying to figure out what to play myself is like, I want something with cheap threats that I protect. Like, what's the closest I can get to Murktide in Modern, but in Pioneer? And especially after playing against Boros, Heroic, I just felt like these favorite hoplites are, are doing a ton of work. They always, always have been, Astrodot Beam. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to me, like, Stan, when you look at like a deck like this versus like a deck like Spirits, they're trying to do sort of the same thing in different ways, right? Which is like grow the board, protect things via either uh, protection spells or just growing out of the reach of removal and spirits has something, you know, spirits has kind of the mausoleum wanderer and they also just growing really large with Lords and things like that. And counter magic. The question I have for you, Dom, as someone with more experience in this format is what would make one 
pick a deck like this over the myriad of other decks that we're about to talk about that do ostensibly the same thing, which is play to the board, try to be aggressive, maybe go wide with a large number of creatures that are growing pretty big and then winning that way. Like, what does this particular deck do you think offer that similar ones do not? Or is it just kind of a, this is the choice that makes sense to me right now, or I just like the way this deck plays and there's not really a big strategic reason to play it. So I think you saw the format take this quite hard, aggressive turn in part to punish the combo deck. So I would say the story of this year is um, before the PTQ uh, that I won, the most recent set of Pioneer Challenge results were dominated by the John Food deck, which almost feels like a dinosaur at this point. But that deck was really having this stranglehold over the format. And that constrained a lot of what was possible in terms of any of these small creature decks. That's exactly the kind of thing that John would have as its food, right? It would chew them up and spit them out. Um, and so when Food and Phoenix are two of the best decks, then a pure combo deck, whether it's Ascendancy or Lotus Field, is perfectly primed to exploit that. And so in that PTQ, you saw uh, two Ascendancy decks and like several Lotus Field decks towards the, the top of the standings there. And the format immediately had this backlash against that. Uh, so these aggressive red decks popped up to punish those. And so this Heroic deck, this is also a fast aggressive deck that can uh, punish the combo decks and, and race them uh, on their own terms. But then also, it's kind of good against everyone else hoping to do the same thing, uh, where if you're facing uh, uh, these red aggro decks that are trying to use damage-based removal in order to answer your threats, then the heroic deck is very good at punching through that because all of your tricks effectively nullify um, that kind of removal. And then your creatures get so big that they can't really you know, beat them with their own creatures uh, either. Versus, you know, if the format was in a place where cards like Fatal Push were very popular or uh, like Exile-based removal or Sweepers at large, then that would punish the Heroic decks. And, and that might be the next step in the format is people going back to these black-based mid-range decks or uh, some of the control decks, perhaps. Um, but for that situation that the format found itself in, a deck like this was perfectly placed to exploit that on top of just being, you know, a deck which has always been a little bit underexplored and then got this nice buff uh, from these new cards. Let's move on. A couple more decks are actually in the same bracket as Boros Heroic with five copies of Peach that a piece that's Mono Red Aggro and Lotus Field. We've mentioned Lotus Field a couple times and people who are familiar with Pioneer probably remember Lotus Field from the format's earliest days. In, in some ways, it was responsible for, you know, arguably the initial decline in Pioneer interest when combo decks were just the best deck in the format. Is Lotus Field still a scourge? It's It seems like it's still good. It was one of the Pioneer Challenger decks. It doesn't have access to Underworld Breach anymore. I'm trying to remember if anything else was banned from it other than Underworld Breach or if that was the main one. It's a big thing to get banned. Isn't that enough for you, Stan? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very curious tale here because... When you think back to that round of bans that effectively tried to remove combo wholesale from the format, um, so they took out Invertible Truths. They, they didn't even do some kind of half measure where oh, maybe we'll ban Dig Through Time and that will be okay. Is no, we, we don't want this deck existing in any form whatsoever. So, so that's gone. 
We're going to ban uh, Walking Blister because apparently the Helio combo is too obnoxious uh, for some people. So uh, that one gets to leave. Uh, we're going to ban Kethis, even though that deck was not actually putting up any results at the time. But people were so allergic to combo, apparently, that we just, you know, as a preventative measure, we'll, we'll get that one out of there as, as part of this uh, move. And then we'll ban Underworld Breach, even though... It's not actually essential to the way this Lotus Field deck operates. It is, you know, that version of the deck was called Lotus Breach, and you would build around Underworld Breach because it's this incredibly powerful combo enabler, and we've seen that across so many formats. Uh, but the core structure of play Lotus Field, copy it ideally, and then just start tapping it and untapping it to generate lots of mana, that concept was allowed to remain in place. And so Lotus Field combo uh, survived, and predictably, once you had the format as a whole becoming less powerful because all of these other combo decks were removed, this less powerful iteration of Lotus Field was able to flourish still because uh, it was the one remaining combo deck. And so in that regard, it almost benefited from less attention being on combo as a whole. Um, and so it's been able to wreak havoc uh, still uh, ever since then. And so it's... I think in one sense, it's good to have these kind of pure combo decks available in the format. I think they add a nice kind of variety and uh, is a good way to differentiate Pioneer from a format like Standard or like Alchemy, where, you know, they're usually a little less receptive to that kind of deck. At the same time, Lotus Field in particular is, it may be the hardest single card to nullify in the entire format, where there's a good reason that they don't print good land destruction anymore. But even if they did, th th this is the the, the trade-off with Lotus Field, is that if you could target this with Field of Ruin, let's say, right, the deck couldn't exist because that's such a massive sacrifice to make up front that having all of that work undone by a Field of Ruin, by a, a Assassin's Trophy, Cleansing Wildfire, whatever, the whole deck would be a non-starter. So either the deck doesn't work or the central card at the heart of the deck has to be basically as resilient as a magic card can possibly be from any form of interaction in order for this to be, to be possible. Um, and so there are basically two cards in the format that interact with Lotus Field directly. It's Damping Sphere and Alpine Moon. And those cards are both very effective at what they do. And in theory, any deck can play Damping Sphere. And so there is a universal answer uh, to this card. But it does create this... I'm going to say not very satisfying dynamic, where for the most part, it just becomes a question of, is my deck fundamentally good against Lotus Field? Is it faster? Is it disruptive? And so on. Or do I just, you know, do I decide to show up with my Alpine Moons this weekend and hope I dodge the Lotus Field pairing? Or uh, do I not because I think, uh, you know, my other cyborg cards are more important? To me, that's not really a very interesting trade-off because, uh you know, once you get into the games themselves, and it's a binary question of, do I draw Alpine Moon or not? That's that's not, not the best gameplay. Yeah, I don't like this deck either. Well, what, what's strange is, after they, they took their shot and they missed, now it's almost like they're apologizing for it because this is one of the, the Pioneer Challenger decks, is this, like, bare-bones build of Lotus Field. And so this is how they're introducing people to the Pioneer format. And if you then, at some point, have to ban Lotus Field entirely. That, that's an awful look when you've just, you know, posited this as one of your entry-level uh, products there. So I, I, this deck I imagine is here to say at this point, thankfully, in its current form, there is a cap on how fast it can be 
you know, the deck can kill on turn four, although even that is not that common. And turn five usually is like the fundamental turn here. And it is reliant on finding the card loaders field. And so, you know, sometimes you thought these are silver scrying and they just don't do anything for most of the game. Or, uh, you know, cards like Narset, Mystical Dispute, the cards that you expect to be good against blue decks and combo decks are good against Lotus Field too. So it's not just as reductive as, you know, play Alpine Moon or don't. Um, but, you know, I, I could see why people who, certainly who lost to this deck back in the day, if that would sour them on the whole Pioneer experience. Yeah, I, I thought that this was a really strange choice for for the Challenger decks too. Didn't stop me from buying one because I didn't well, have so. <laughs> it. And I, and I was like, this deck is going to be around apparently, like you said. And so I was like, you know, 40 bucks to have a lot of the cards in here that weren't in my collection. I was like, okay, I'm going to buy it and put it in a box, sleeve it up and just like have it in case I ever decide to somehow decide to play this deck. You know, I am much more apt to play an aggro deck, but you know, I, I it was a weird choice to me to be like, this is one of the marquee intro decks of the format because I just feel like Lotus Field is such a strange card, a frustrating card for people to play against because of how, how that works. It's also one of those decks where, it looks very strange from the outside and it seems quite daunting maybe when you're picking up the deck yourself for the first time. And then you look at these results and you see time and time again, the same people, uh, you know, Conor Mullally, Will Kruger and so on, just crushing with this deck week in, week out. And so you think, what are they doing that I'm not? Like what forbidden knowledge have they unlocked somehow that allows them to, to win with this deck? And then you then think, well, am I meant to just put in the dozens of hours required to to try and get, you know, some steps along that way myself? Or do I just leave this to the handful of people who play this deck in every tournament? And do I just do my own thing that's more in my comfort level instead? Yeah, one thing you talked about, Dom, that I was thinking about with this deck and perhaps the Jeskai Ascendancy a bit before, is it's one of the few decks in the format that seems kind of like the draw your sideboard cards or lose type thing. And I think that's one thing that the rest of the format is somewhat insulated against. Like, sure, if you bring in four removal spells from your sideboard and you draw one or two extra, maybe that's going to help you, but it doesn't mean like it's an automatic win, right? But I think a lot of times this is one of those things that I think people can get frustrated about with Modern, where it's a sideboard-centric format, it's a hate card-centric format, and I think Pioneer dodges a lot of that. And it's it's interesting that I think it's just part of a the way the magic works is that we're going to have mashups like this. We're going to have decks like this that are so powerful, but sometimes easily hated out if you if you try to do so with your sideboard plans or the format is conspires against them long enough that the critical mass just forces them down a bit. Yeah, I, I will touch on a specific hate card there in a Deafening Silence. Uh, so this is a card who's individual stock has risen a lot in the last few weeks because uh, it's great against Dress Guys NNC, pretty good against Lotus Field, and also strong against uh, Is It Phoenix. And so with those being three of the top decks in the format, this is a, a nice all-purpose sideboard card against those. And I think the gameplay of that card is also a little more encouraging, where it doesn't completely stop them from participating in the game. They still get to cast spells, albeit at a, a, at a slower pace. They can dig for their answer to that card. Um, but it is still a very effective card, which, you know, if you can resolve it, if you can protect it, uh, then that's going to go a long way in, in winning you the game there. Interestingly, Deafening Silence is probably pretty okay against 
Voros uh, heroic too, just because this can slow them down a little bit and make them not able to chain through their their deck as easily. Speaking of red decks again, next one on the list is mono red. Now, Stan, you had said that that was aggro. I'm not sure, like which type of mono red deck are we talking? Is this chunky? Is this is this a throwback to Todd Anderson? Chunky red? Is it something lower to the ground than that? What what is this? I mean, this is what I play it. I can talk about it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is red is not aggro. I mean, it's it has aggressive tendencies, but it's definitely a deck that plays for Chandra, Torch of Defiance, is not an aggro deck necessarily. And so it does it basically does play a lot like the old chonkish decks of yore. It tops out at, at Torbren and Chandra. It's not doing the glory bringer thing any longer. And what I think it's leaning a little bit harder on than it was in the past is one Den of the Bugbear, which is just a, a, a great creature land, of course. And it still gets to play Ramanap Ruins, which still does the same job as always. I think there's some new pieces that are making it different slash better. And it has more of a taxing element than it used to with cemetery gatekeeper uh adding to the two drop that provides a, a triggered damage ability by exiling a card from a graveyard and then anytime the opponent plays or you plays a card of that type then uh it does two damage to you it also typically runs three to four rampaging ferocidon for this creature-centric format, it's doing a lot of pinging-type damage, especially when you have a Torbin on the board. Uh, it does extra damage from any of these triggers, which is really nice. And so, you know, when your red deck doesn't run Monastery Swift Spear, you really can't call it an aggressive red deck. Uh, it's kind of also leaning a little bit on the newer Play With Fire, which is just a nice little shock effect with a potential scry advantage which is nice at instant speed. And so uh, it just sort of, it, it plays out much like it did in the past, which is a little bit of an aggression, a little bit of interaction, some taxing effects that really do add up against the opponent and the ability to take over the game slowly with just sort of the value of Bone Crusher, sweeping the board with Chain Whirler. And then Chandra, every time she comes down, she's doing something great. Yeah, it's an interesting list, you know, just because we haven't talked, I mean, I'll go through the deck list a little bit here, just in concept, 26 creatures in this deck. And like, like Shane said, not super aggro, you know, it's got one set of one drops in Soulscar Mage, a bunch of two drops between Cemetery, Gatekeeper, and Eidolon of the Great Revel. You got your threes, which are Bone Crusher, Giant, Goblin Chain Whirler, Rampaging, Ferocidon, and then Torbrin. At first, it looks like you don't have a lot of interaction because there's only five spells, right? There's four play with fire and one lightning strike in the list that I'm looking at anyway. I don't know what exactly list you were Yeah, that's, that's pretty typical. But, you know, you got Bone Crusher Giant, so that's four more spells. You have Goblin Chain Whirler. That's a little bit of, of interaction with the sweep effect. And then, of course, you have Chandra that can hit somebody, hit a target for four, a creature for four, that is. And um, so you do have a lot more interaction than it looks like when you just look at the deck list of a ton of creatures. You have a bunch of shocks in, yeah. in your cemetery gatekeeper and your idol on the great rebels. Do you know what I mean? That, that's that's four. That's eight extra shocks you got right there, my friend, and potentially more. So you're saying this isn't an aggro deck? What's your fastest clock? Like, can this? So if you're goldfishing, you're what winning turn five six? I mean, this is it's not really a goldfish deck because it's so reliant on 
what your opponent's doing, right? Where it's like, yeah, I play an Eidolon of the Great Revel and then swinging for two, but as we all know, that's not what Eidolon of the Great Revel does, right? Like it, it's it swings for two by your opponent casting spells, and then Cemetery Gatekeeper swings for two by your opponent casting a spell that matches the card type you exiled. The first strike comes in advantageous with Gatekeeper. The first strike comes in advantageous with, with Chain Whirler, and so it's just kind of a it's a it's it's good at going slightly above what the rest of the format does with some of the smaller aggro decks, but it sort of still exists in that bad area where, like you said, Stan, is the clock is not great. And it definitely doesn't have the clock, like Dom was talking about, of the hyper-aggressive sort of heroic-style deck. And so it exists in this potentially uncanny valley where it it's, it's not going to do enough at any point, but because it can have really well-statted creatures. It can get a lot of value off Chandra. It has good game and good sideboard against control decks and against aggro decks. It's sort of just like a mid-range deck in in Pioneer. And Dom, you probably have some more thoughts about this in terms of its placement in the metagame and if people should actually be playing this deck or not. Yeah, and when you talk about Mono Red, you have this whole spectrum from uh, Tronky Red, if you want to go with that uh, term at the top end, all the way down to... You, you can build this very low-to-the-ground, aggressive red deck if you want to. We, we also have dedicated burn decks that exist kind of perpendicular to all of that, um, which were doing really well in the prelims, and then I think one of them showed up in, in the PCQ as well. And so when you talk about the red deck and Pioneer, well, that can mean so many different things. And to me, that's part of the appeal of the format is uh, whatever your preferred deck style is, you have a few options uh, for that. And then within those options, there's a lot of customization and room for innovation and kind of rethinking your basic assumptions there. And so, yeah, this chunky red deck, uh, it's not as fast as maybe a more low-to-the-ground red deck, but I think it is a more solid deck in the sense of just all your cards are really good, all of them hit hard. When you get into some kind of top deck war and your opponent is still at a high life total, well, your top decks are actually pretty good. It, all, they're good threats that demand answers by themselves. Uh, Chandra, Torbrand, perfect top-end cards of this deck. And then Dead of the Bugbear, I think, is a real game-changer for basically any red deck in Pioneer, where, um, you know, so often against these decks, from the other side, you have this experience of, okay, I've, I've dealt with the first wave. I've removed their threat. Um, you know, I've removed this other thing, and I've just about stabilized but I'm at a kind of a precarious life title and Den of the Bugbear is there just like daring you to tap low at any point and take the shields down for removal because it's going to crunch in for four damage, leave something behind that can deal more damage in the future. And it, it just makes it so easy for them to keep applying pressure even in the face of uh, interaction. Is this the best version of Den of the Bugbear in Pioneer? Because we also saw it appear in the heroic deck and I wonder if this is just a little bit more suited to actually treat that as a more consistent threat because it's so much more interactive to the board. Yeah, I think it is better in a deck like this than it is in in heroic where you can get away with a copy in the mana base and so you do it, but uh, it's, it's not ideal in terms of how it contributes to the deck's game plan, whereas here, it it feels very cohesive uh, in that sense. Um, and in terms of these decks and the format at large, if you expect a ton of combo, as was the case a week or two ago, then maybe you want to be either the burn deck, where you can play Eidolon and Cemetery Gatekeeper, and then you even see Scabclan Berserker in some of these sideboards too, so you can play effectively a dozen Eidolons if you really want to go hard 
on that angle. Um, I, I think the faster red lists are better against combo for the most part. But then if the format is reacting to the combo decks and the other aggro decks are part of that, at that point, you want to be the chunkier red deck. That's that's always how you've got an edge in aggro mirrors in the past is being just slightly bigger than them. And so the, the Bone Crusher Giant Goblin Chain Brother deck is is best place to do that. I did miss Rabble Master, but you can you can tell when this deck is shaving Monastery Swift Spear and shaving Rabble Master that it's not trying to be as aggressive as it as it once was. But that's a kind of deck, like you said, Dom, it can be tuned to various speeds of the metagame. Now, Shane, I'm gonna let you brag for a minute. Sure. Because this is this is the deck that you were playing in Phoenix and the Grand the Grand Prix that was Pioneer before that you day two'd with, right? Sure. Basically. It was yeah. something like it's, this. Mine was a little bit faster. It had Swift Spirit, it had Rebel Master. Right. But how how'd you do this week? I, it sounded like you were pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, deck felt great. I, I beat Niv, which means I got lucky. <laughs> um but you know, I had a, a great matchup against Azorius Control that felt really fun. Like I it just like at Phoenix, where it was like, you know, playing the control decks, figuring out how to maneuver around what they're trying to do. And it felt it, it that made me feel feel really happy about Pioneer again, is being able to play a matchup like that and kind of have that back and forth and have the opportunities to be like, okay, if I if I play that now, then maybe they'll tap out to do that. And then it lets me get my Scab Clan Berserker in and it gets that two extra points of damage in. And then I can untap with my Den of the Bugbear. That's the kind of stuff that if you really like that kind of matchup that I don't think you get that quite as often in modern or maybe not on, on turn, you know, 11 uh, as often, but I, I really did like that aspect of, of the game and playing around sweepers again, which you don't do as often in modern anymore because even the control decks aren't running sweepers, but. So Stan, we're making our way through your meta table here. I would say, I think we have three more decks to look at that are kind of like the top of yes. the meta game. Which one would you yeah, like to talk so, about next? You know, this metagame included 48 different copies of decks. So, you know, seven of those 48 were Phoenix and so on and so forth. So let's just focus on the ones that had multiple copies. And I think the next one that we've alluded to previously is Junt Food, the Bola Citadel deck. Dom, you mentioned you want a challenge with this deck, and this used to be the Scourge of the Format. And when I look at the deck list for this one, this just feels like mostly a carbon copy of what people might be used to from historic with the exception of like a few pieces here or there. And maybe even like this is a, one of the best examples of a of a standard deck that's been upgraded to a non-rotating format. I, there is a crucial distinction here uh, between this deck, the Collected Company uh, Citadel deck, and then the the food deck, the Cat Oven Trader Crumbs build. That second one, uh, the food deck, that's the one that really was format defining uh, over the past few weeks and the citadel deck is it's more of a pet project i think it's a, a more powerful deck in the abstract and i have a ton of fun playing it uh, and i've had some success with it but by and large if you know your opponent leads on gilded goose you should expect to see trade of crumbs and cat oven as opposed to any of this other stuff um and so the the food version this is one of the best grindy decks that you could possibly imagine, where if your opponent gives you enough time, it is so difficult to overwhelm a resolved trailer crumbs, and especially if you're trying to close the game out by attacking in combat, you have Colin Familiar dancing back and forth and blocking something every time, being sacrificed to Witch's Oven, uh, Mayhem Devil, uh, just cleaning up everything in sight, uh, picking off all of these uh, low toughness creatures. 
uh, Fatal Push, Thorsies, the, the usual black interaction going along with all of that. And so, yeah, if you're trying to just play small, fair creatures and win the game, this is the deck you, you really don't want to see. But then, because it's fundamentally kind of slow and clunky, then it is exploitable by the Jeskai Tendencies and, and the Lotus Fields uh, of the world. Meanwhile, the Citadel deck uh, has its own inconsistencies, for sure. But if you're trying to just race them and just go over the top and, and do something powerful, there's very little in any format that goes over the top or is more powerful than, than both the Citadel. And um, in Pioneer, you know, if you've seen this version in Standard, you've seen it in Historic, the big addition here is actually Catacomb Sifter, this kind of innocuous card that isn't in Historic, but is uh, within that kind of age gap where it is in uh, Pioneer. And so this card is it's one black green for a 2-3. When it enters the battlefield, you get a 1-1 one, 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 one Eldrazi Scion, which can sacrifice itself for a colorless mana on demand. And whenever a creature you control dies, you get to scry one. And so when you're going off with Bolas Citadel, what you really need to do is be able to clear the top of your deck. Because if you hit a clump of lands or you're another Bolas Citadel or other cards that you can't cast, you want to be able to filter those away. And Rose Strider already does uh, help with that. But Catacomb Sifter as well, uh, you know, by itself can is an additional source of scrying. And if you have it along <laughs> with uh, Rose Strider, at this point, you're just stacking your deck, <laughs> effectively, when you're going off with these cards. So that really ties the room together. And it's also a, another really good free drop to hit off your collected companies. And, you know, it's two bodies for Priest of the Forgotten Gods, which is, you know, one of the, the unique... Uh, aspects of this deck um, and, and this is another thing which is brought back to life by this very innocuous common or uncommon in this case it's prosperous innkeeper so this is two mana for a one one when it uh, etbs you get a treasure token and whenever another creature etbs under your control you gain a life so you have this source of ramp which is itself resistant to removal to get you up to six for your citadel um, and then if it's in play with the Citadel, you're paying life when you, you play your creatures off the top of your deck, but then you're gaining some of the life back with the Innkeeper. And so that makes it so much easier to just cast whatever you see and keep the chain going until you find something like the Devil or the Woe Strider to, to really lock things up. I had a lot of fun playing these style decks in Historic, for sure, for a while there. And you're right, they totally shred opposing creature decks. Like that That was what always felt like the great matchups to me. Um, it's, it's very, very cool to see a version of that live on here in, in Pioneer as well. It's always so striking when I look at the deck list for the ones that have cat combo in them too. And it's like, oh, this is, this is all just Thrones yeah. of Eldraine. This entire deck, it's like six Thrones of Eldraine's cards and then Mayhem Devil yeah. <laughs> and like, and then Innkeeper now, which of course makes a ton of sense to be in either build of this deck, I think. But, um, yeah, this is a, this is a fun deck to play for sure. A parasitic mechanic that worked. Food. Yum. Food. Still can't believe one of the best ones. Right. I, for the food deck, uh, there, there's another card from the same set as Innkeeper, actually, that helps to power this deck, and that's Deadly Dispute. Um, so this is one in a black, as an additional cost, you you sacrifice a, an artifact or a creature, and you draw two cards, and you make a treasure token. Uh, and so in this deck, you're often going to have either just a, a cauldron familiar without an oven, and so you sack the cat, you you dig towards the oven, and then you can uh, get your engine going there, or you're going to have like a random food token lying around. If you have Trail of Crumbs, a pretty common line is uh, turn two trail, and then turn three, deadly dispute, sack the, the food token from trail, 
That then triggers the trail, so you can pay there and dig, and then you're drawing two cards and then getting a treasure token. And so you just have this abundance of resources at that point. And so this is a really nice card that just helps to tie the room together so nicely. I've heard it referred to by a friend of mine as the Black Expressive Iteration, which uh, is kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. It's a lot more conditional than that card, but uh, as we've seen in a lot of formats at this point, if you can build your deck around this card, it's a really nice thing to have access to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know that that card has like fundamentally changed Popper in a lot of ways too, and um, it's interesting to see something like. I mean, essentially, the card's village rights, right? But it has more restrictions. But the fact that it makes a treasure token instead of just giving you mana and costing one less is a really interesting dynamic that lets you do a lot more stuff with it. Yeah, it does effectively cost one mana in longer games because you're paying two up front and then you're getting one back from the treasure token. Uh, so in yeah, there, there will be turns where you pay to, you get the treasure back, immediately sacrifice it to cast something else. But then that one widget in the form of the treasure can mean so many different things for the deck, whether it's, you know, it's a Mayhem Devil trigger or it's uh, something else that you can use for a big payment on something later on. Uh, just a lot more flexibility uh, bound up in that card. All right, the next deck that we have that we uh, rose to the top of the metagame is Black Red Midrange. What's that look like in this format, Stan? This is quite a bit different than what people might be used to with the Black Red Arcanist deck in Historic because it uses quite a few of new cards from Crimson Vow and Midnight Hunt, such as Bloodthirsty Adversary, Blood Tithe Harvester, Graveyard Trespasser, and it also relies on Kalidus, Traitor of Get, notable good card from Oath of the Gatewatch. Still, like... $20 card somehow. But otherwise, it has like a very similar interactive interaction package with a bunch of Fatal Push, Thoughtseize, Colligan's Command. Your top end includes, in addition to Kalidus, Chandra, and this new Soren, the Mirthless. So this looks like one of the other mid-range archetypes in addition to Jund or, or even Chonky Red for that matter. And this is the one that, at least among the decks we've talked about, this is the first one that actually uses Thoughtseize and, and will sometimes interact with the opponent's hand in addition to playing to the board. Yeah, this is like the this is the interactive creature-ish deck, just in a different way of interacting, right? Like there's 18 spells that are doing some kind of removal or interacting with the hand, and then value creatures, and then some value planeswalkers. And I'm kind of fascinated by it. Um, I didn't have time to play with or against it. And Dom, what are your thoughts on, on this one? This is Jund, basically. If you if you like casting uh, Tamagoyf and Liliana of the Veil in modern, then uh, this is the deck for you. And this is yet another archetype where you have these multiple derivations uh, of it. So you have uh, the, the one that Stan described where it's going a little bigger. You've got your Bone Crusher Giants and uh, Graveyard Trespasser actually is this new flagship threat uh, in a lot of these black decks in, in Pioneer where... Um, that card, it, it kind of does a little bit of everything. And so it's easy to think, well, surely there must be a better option for any one of those tasks. But the fact that it's so versatile, especially for a mid-range deck where you often have, you're going to draw dead thought seizes in the mid-game or against aggro or against control. Maybe you're going to draw you know, one too many fatal pushes or something. The fact that you have this threat, which, yeah, it gains you some life back against the red decks and it's eating cards from the graveyard against uh, Phoenix, for example. And against a control deck, 
yeah, it starts off with a 3-3, but then if they're playing a reactive game, that's going to become a 4-4 that they have to kill. And when they do try to kill it, they have to spend another card because of its uh, ward uh, trigger. And so for a mid-range deck, it's just every part of the buffalo is is so strong on that card. Uh, it really has uh, overperformed uh, for me. So you have that uh, bigger black-red deck, but then you also have like the classic uh, Rakdos Arcanist deck that will be maybe familiar from Historic. Um, that used to be uh, one of the scourges of, of Pioneer. And then a new challenger has arrived on the scene here too. Uh, one of the super qualifier winners from this past weekend, actually this this lower to the ground black-red Lurus deck with a blood token sub-theme of all things, um, where you mentioned the Blood Tithe Harvester. Mm-hmm. This deck also has Vordaran Epicure and Deadly Dispute. Uh, so that's a card which is more realistic once you have the epicure and blood tokens and there are some citrus supplies in here some croxes uh and you're pairing that with that classic black mid-range package of thought seizes and fatal pushes just the, the best cards of what they do at the cheapest cost yeah that, that deck you're talking about is actually the one that won this super preliminary ptq event that actually happened this weekend yeah it's this is a thing which when i have time to dive into Pioneer again. I'm really curious about this deck. I want to put it through its paces. I feel like Graveyard Trespasser in particular has been kind of a little bit divisive, where on the one hand, I've seen it be very popular in this archetype and and really explored heavily in Pioneer. But, you know, from a high level, like, it looks like it's pretty expensive. Do you feel like the juice is worth the squeeze? Like, is this actually doing a a true Tarmogoyf impression at three mana? I do, yeah. I it, the card has been impressive for me across the board. If I'm building a a black deck in Pioneer, even something like Vampires, where it's not a vampire, it doesn't tie into any of the the tribal themes of the deck. It is still on plan with the the interactive elements there, and it supports those so nicely. Uh, and one place you do even see it actually is in the sideboard of the the blue black control decks where you often see control decks try to pivot to some kind of creature threat in the post-cyborg games to, to catch opponents off guard and to stabilize the board against aggro and so on. And Trespasser is so perfect for that. It's great against aggro, great against the red decks in particular. And then also, if you're trying to catch the other control decks off guard, well, this does a job there as well. And in a control mirror, where often both players are passing back and forth, is going to go from day to night, and then you've spent three mana for this 4-4 that's hard to kill and is like dealing damage when it attacks and it just it does a little bit of everything yeah also when it etbs or attacks it exiles cards from a graveyard and then if it's a creature card you gain a life and an opponent loses a life the flip side lets you exile up to two cards at three mana how relevant is that against the is it phoenix deck like is, is, is that fast enough to actually disrupt the phoenix plan ever not not by itself it can't be the first thing you do or the only thing you do but as part of a larger recipe where, okay, you, you fatal push their thing in the ice, and now you play Trespasser, eat the thing in the ice. Well, okay, now maybe they can Lightning Axe your Trespasser, but they've already discarded one card to that, and now they have to discard another one, and maybe you can like work a Go Blank into that equation as well. So it's not, it's not going to do it by itself. You know, a, a good Phoenix draw will go over the top of a Trespasser, but if you have other stuff just to you know, throw some jabs in there, uh, then Trespass is a perfect follow-up to that. All right, let's talk about one last deck in this bucket of high performers, and that's Blue-White Control, which is another strategy that 
in my mind, has basically stuck around since the earliest days of Pioneer, you know, counterspells, removal, and your top end is Teferi. And it's also the first, you know, true control deck that we've really talked about in this episode. You know, older fans might remember us talking about Fires of Invention, which is still prevalent in Pioneer. It's not necessarily one of the decks we're going to go into too much detail today. Dom mentioned a blue-black control deck. But blue-white, at least in this case, it appeared three times across the six tournaments that we looked at. And it actually appeared in the finals of those tournaments twice. So on two different occasions, this was the premier control deck in the format this month. How powerful is control in this current format? It doesn't look like it's one of the, the top decks, per se, in terms of popularity, share, according to Goldfish. But is blue-white doing something significantly better than blue-black, for instance, or maybe any other control strategies that might be lurking around on the fringes? So with control, you're always going to have to be perceptive to what else is going on in the format for the most part, where if you have a strong proactive game plan, then sometimes you get to not really care what's going on on the other side, or if you do get caught by surprise, then that's okay, because what you're doing can just win games by itself anyway. When you have to line up your answers against their threats, you need to know what their threats are. And if you get caught with the wrong answers, uh, that can be uh, damaging sometimes. Part of the appeal of Control Decks and Pioneer is a lot of the answers are broad enough and generic enough that it kind of doesn't matter, right? So one of the big draws to blue-white is Supreme Verdict. And when you have that card in your deck, if your opponent is playing creatures, to some extent it doesn't really matter how big those creatures are or what else they're doing or what have you, if you get to cast your Supreme Verdict, you mop those up and and that's the guarantee. Versus, you know, blue-black, this is one of the trade-offs here. You don't have that kind of reliable sweeper. You have to look at things like Languish or Extinction Event, Shadow's Verdict uh, instead. But you do get the good cheap black cards, right? You get Fatal Push, which if the mission of a control deck is just to survive the early turns, well, a card like Fatal Push is so valuable for doing that. And that's not really a good equivalent in in white uh, as an alternative. So that's just one of the the, the pros and cons on that list. But yeah, blue-white in this format, and blue-white in every format, you know, every format that gets sufficiently large is going to have a mono-red deck, it's going to have a blue-white control deck. And so you you get those classic archetypes and magic pretty well represented uh, in Pioneer. And this version of blue-white control, um, it's going to have a lot of familiar stuff to it. You've got uh, Teferi, Hero of Dominaria as you know, a card draw engine, finisher, and sometimes an answer to permanence all bound up in one card. You have your choice of stuff like Fateful Absence, Azorius Charm, Detention Sphere as your your early interaction. Uh, Supreme Verdict, obviously phenomenal against creature decks. And then Absorb is uh, one of the other draws to to Blue-White where, you know, you don't want to be casting three mana counter spells often against the decks that are going fast, but if that counter spell undoes some of the damage that you were dealt in combat that turn, that goes a long way towards helping you stabilize. And, you know, life gain, if it's stable to other effects, has always been a a useful staple in control decks, and Absorb just binds that up in in an effect you already want to play in some number regardless. And then you get to round things out with uh, Memi Deluge is a nice addition to the roster in terms of card draw, alongside, you know, Dig Through Time, uh, Consider is a card you see a lot here. Uh, and then Shark Typhoon is uh, was one of the best cards recently printed for control decks, really across any format, where it's this 
really flexible card which sometimes you cycle it on turn two because you need to hit your third land drop. Sometimes you you make a 2-2 shark and you try and ambush a creature in combat and then sometimes you get to turn 10, you make a gigantic shark and draw a card at the end of their turn at instant speed and then there's the you know the stretch goal of just casting Shark Typhoon and uh, trying to have some fun with it. But So yeah, the, the control decks in Pioneer, all of the, the bread and butter effects that you need in a control deck you have a lot of options for each of those, and they're all pretty powerful for what they are. So yeah, if you're someone who likes that style of gameplay too, then a lot of good options there for you too. Yeah, I, I got to play against this deck one time, and I got to tell you, Azorius Charm is not a card I missed playing against. It's, it's no. memory lapse. It's just like, in a format that plays to the board so heavily, the third mode on Azorius Charm, put target attacking or blocking creature on top of its owner's library, just feels like such a backbreaker, especially if you're in a threat light deck. That I feel like blue white control. Looking at a lot of the deck lists now, they seem to be pretty consistent. You know, really heavily focused on supreme verdict, especially. And I feel like that just kind of speaks to how board present this format really is, with having that counter magic backup for some of those combo strategies uh, being both flexible and efficient as as a way to kind of like cover all of your bases. One card that you do see these control decks built around nowadays is Narset Partravails. Uh, so anyone who's played against this card knows how obnoxious it can be, and especially for other blue decks. If you look at where the rest of the format is at the moment, is is a Phoenix, which is trying to draw a bunch of cards in a single turn, uh, and this card is often crippling uh, for them. Jeskai Ascendancy, you, you, like they can win through Narset if they already have everything together in theory, but this stops some looting, stops some treasure cruising, and, and so on. Um, and then Lotus Field, Often they're trying to cast cards like Peer into the Abyss, Pour Over Pages, uh, and so on. And so against both the the default best deck, the combo decks of the format, and then of course the other control decks, you know, this card is is an all-star. It's funny, I feel like we kind of hit almost all of the marquee cards of the format in these these decks that we saw here, right? Like there's a lot of cards that sort of were pillars of Pioneer the last time we checked in it, like Narset, like Don was just talking about, to Chandra, Torch of Defiance, to other other things on top of that, on top of all of those as well. Um, but it's funny that it feels like in these like eight decks or so, those pillars are still represented. It's just the cards that enable them have changed and shift around and, and some of the dynamics have changed, but it still feels, without the combo decks, feels like a similar kind of place to what we liked about Pioneer a long time ago. That that's kind of exactly where I wanted to go next. If we're ready to to talk about kind of the the format at large, and and because we're primarily a modern podcast, I think it's probably good to kind of talk about maybe the differences between the formats and how they felt to play. And and Dom, you know, we know that that you uh, are our co-host on a modern podcast as well, but you've been enjoying Pioneer, so I think you'll have a particularly relevant point of view here as well. But I, I do feel, Dave, like you've been saying, is that the format kind of feels like it's about the same stuff. Like, besides... The- Except Phoenix didn't used to be good the last time we were playing Pioneer, yeah. and now it but, is. You know, we have, you we know? have Consider now, and we have Expressive Iteration, two notably okay cards to uh, add to its, to its 75, along with a few other things that I'm likely forgetting. But I, I still feel like... You know, it's it's a lot of playing to the board. It's a lot of interacting with the opponent's board, or maybe interacting with their hand, or interacting with spells on the stack, and like really trying to own the battlefield by and large. And like you know, Phoenix and Chonky Red and Black Vampires and Rakdos Vampires and Jun Sack and Spirits and Feather are are all trying to do 
this type of thing in like various slightly different ways, of course, or maybe in you know, significantly different ways. But, you know, Rakdos Vampires is going to have a lot more interaction than Threats, for example. But you, know, you have your control decks and you have your combo decks. But like largely, it still sort of feels like the same format it did two years ago when I was testing and playing uh, for the, the GPs that were happening at the beginning of 2020. Is that the year? That's a year, 2020, right? 2020, yeah. Um, you know, it, it still, to me, feels like it, it. the reason that you would play Pioneer, which is like, here's really good standard plus gameplay. Like here's there's a control deck and there's a combo deck and there's play to the you know there's a creature decks of different speeds and you kind of get time to develop your develop your strategy and try to counteract what your opponent is doing in like a, a different speed and way than than modern and is that something that you all felt in your play or or Dom that you've been feeling in your play with Pioneer recently or am I off of my off base maybe. I, I think that that's broadly fair. I mean, I do think that's where they want Magic to be at for the most part is the the board being contested and uh, you know removal and creatures and planeswalkers being a, a big part of of all of that. And I think that's mostly where the format should end up, especially for a format like Pioneer, where you kind of accept that if you're playing Legacy, for example, or even Modern, there's going to be some truly wacky stuff that is going to come out of left field and the cards that you want to have in your deck normally are not going to necessarily line up against those. Um, whereas the Pioneer, I think you, you do have the combo decks, which just had a fantastic weekend not long ago. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, if you show up and you, you're you ready to play like old school bread and butter magic, then you can do that in a variety of forms. And I think that's a good thing. And these formats, when they become about stuff like you know, in Standard, we had uh, Aaron's Epiphany or Emergent Ultimatum, Genesis Ultimatum. Whenever you can kind of ignore what's going on on the board and just go over the top, I think that's when the formats often degenerate to a place where people don't want to play those anymore. And during that period where Pioneer was really stagnating, that was a common trend, right? It's that That's what made the Inverted deck so good, is that it was this amazing combo control deck they could just mostly ignore whatever the opponent was doing. And then the, you know, the Helio decks and, and Lotus Breach played into that to some regard as well. Um, and then also Pioneer went through the same experience uh, as every other format where at the time it was launching, you know, all of the cards that were being printed, the best cards were so good that they were just the best cards in every single format. So, you know, if you were sick of playing against Uro and Standard, then, well, you're going to play against Uro in modern and pioneer and historic and, and so on and you know same thing for teferi time raveler and broadness reclamation uh, and so on and so at that point there was no real reason to really look at pioneer as opposed to any of those other formats and there was no escape from those cards now it almost feels like pioneer is this oasis of old school magic that the kind that people harken back to from like standard from five or six years ago or uh, kind of old school modern like 2014 2015 kind of era um like this is i think the type of magic that people do want to play for the most part and there just aren't that many good venues for it outside of this stan dave does this form does this conceptually have an appeal to you i I know that there's a reason that we have locked so hard on modern over the past years um when when 
Dom and you know the rest of the people who are into Pioneer say stuff like that, like is that conceptually appealing? I mean, for me, it's it it is. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have a break where you don't. I mean, Dom was saying there's different things that come out of nowhere in modern. I was just imagining Pioneer is the place where you go to take a break from Titan. Sort of, it's like it's like <laughs> maybe what the difference is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You like you're you you like to play Titan, right, Don? I, I'm a known uh, for me or Titan yeah, sympathizer. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get into it, but. Um, but yeah, but it's it's that kind of thing that doesn't seem like there's quite as many venues to it in Pioneer as there were as there were before. Now, you know, there was that really rough period that we've talked about many times. But um, you know, the games that I played with, the, I didn't play with any of these decks. I played with Mono Blue Spirits it, this week for this episode because I really liked that deck in Historic for a minute. I saw some people were playing it. I thought I'd give it a try. Um, it was a it was a fun deck. Uh, the gameplay was like you said, really board based. You know, you're figuring out how to get through, be tricky, get through people. You know, with that deck, you're trying to figure out how to leverage um, rattle chains in the best way, basically, and kind of go from there. And that was fun, and it was a different experience to what modern is right now. And so I think that's enough to make me keep one eye on it a little bit more than I have been the last six months or so. I will say I had an issue going into this week, which was actually finding a deck that looked interesting to me because so many of the, the decks play on this axis. Yeah, they look they they're like they're doing the same thing slightly differently, right? Yeah, and and in that regard, like ascendancy and lotus combo looked appealing because at least they were a change of pace from everything else that was just playing to the board. Ascendancy was a little too big brain for me to kind of try to pick up and 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 figure out how to pilot on short notice but i got to play against it a lot of times and and you know understand what makes it so impressive as as the opponent and and at least in my testing i just played the most recent successful blue white and soul deck i can find and soul being a, a one of my favorite pioneer cards and one of my favorite old standard cards and I noticed that it stopped being an Izzet deck in Pioneer lately, and now it seems to be an Azorius deck, I think in part because of Luris and, and Portable Hole and maybe a couple other things. Ingenious Smith helps too. That said, I was playing this board-based plan, and it was mostly just me butting heads with other board-based plans, and it did make me miss a little bit of what I felt like was the appeal of modern, which is there's just so much variety in decks and play styles. And even if there's a lot of similar cards existing across modern archetypes, they seem to be put to a lot of different uses. You know, In some cases, they're being used to actually generate a ton of value on the board or in your graveyard. Maybe they're being used to pitch to elementals, what have you. But I, feel, I felt like that was kind of my struggle, was actually just finding something that captured my imagination. And in that regard, Pioneer sort of felt like a standard 0.5 format where it's a pretty small pool of playable decks maybe a little bit bigger than what you might expect from a standard format but it didn't feel like as quite as wide open as maybe what i would expect from a non-rotating environment yeah real real quick and then i'm gonna i'm gonna let don give his impressions of it but i, I think the the thing that's interesting we've talked a lot lately in modern about to be successful in modern, you have to be really in command of implicit information, right? Like you have to know what you're, you have to identify a deck fast for the most part. You have to understand what their game plan is. You have to know what types of things they would have in their hand that could thwart your plan and then build the plan for your game around that. So there's this kind of like book knowledge that goes into being good at modern, I think at this point in time. And I feel like 
when we say playing to the board, what's really happening is like you can come to them. I felt like you could come to a modern game against a lot of the, or, or sorry, a pioneer game against a lot of these decks. Maybe not Lotus Field, maybe not uh, Ascendancy combo in the same way, but you can come to it and just like play. And it's much more about the explicit knowledge of like, oh, they played this card. Now I'm going to play this card. It's much less about the kind of like branching decision paths of if they play this card, I'm going to do this. If they, you know, like we have to work through all the hypotheticals uh, that I think happens in modern a lot more. But Dom, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time in both formats, you've been loving Pioneer lately. What's what's your impression been of why and where that's going, that kind of stuff? Well, even though my job uh, is to talk about modern, you know, week in, week out, and there there is always stuff to talk about. Uh, You know, we have our nonsense of the week segment and there's always a, you know, a healthy uh, dollop of nonsense to, to, to look into. I think Pioneer actually is a much more open format, certainly right now, than modern is. So what one issue that modern is having is increasingly it's condensing around uh, the top three or four decks. Um, and a, a lot of the implicit variety in modern, if you're being honest with yourself, there aren't great reasons to be exploring that space over either one of the top decks or one of the top decks is just kind of a better version of what you're doing. So for example, you know, I, I won a modern challenge the first week that MHU came out with Hardened Scales, you know, a pet deck of mine. A lot of people were really excited to see that deck pop back up on the scene. But looking back, if I'm honest with myself, is that deck really better than Hammer or does it have any clear strengths over Hammer? Not really. And so once people figure out Hammer, well, that's just where all of that attention flocks uh, instead. If you want to build a new deck in Modern, then you have to contend with all of the threats being really good now and then all of the answers being boosted, especially with MH2, to these new heights as well. So let's say I want to build some like new creature uh, deck, you know, some tribal deck, what have you. Well, there's not really a good reason to be playing a bunch of like expensive conditional creatures when I could just play Merktide region, right? Or I could play the, the one-drop package of Ragavan and DRC, Unholy Heat, and so on. Um, and then even if you can assemble your contraption and like do your thing, well, you have to slog through, you know, Solitude, Unholy Heat, whichever of force negation, force of vigor, fury is good against you, uh, and so on. And it's really difficult for any new idea to clear both of those bars at the same time. Whereas in Pioneer, I think both sides of that equation are different because I don't think any of the threats are like universally good by themselves. So a lot of it really depends on the context you're putting it in. And so you look at like the Vampires deck, for example, which was like, the go-to deck a few weeks ago, just before this, this was like one step previously in this cycle. And in that deck, you uh, you know, Sorin is this flagship card, right? The three mana Sorin, which in the context of that deck, maybe is the best Planeswalker ever printed, like even above Oko, but then no other deck has an interest in that card. Um, so that's a card which has tremendous potential, but you can't just slot it into your deck. You have to figure out ways to, to unlock what that card is doing. And so, yeah, if you want to play Vampires, you can do that. But then if you want to play the Insol deck, which is also a deck I've had a lot of fun with, well, there you get like uh, Insol Artifact. Uh, you, you get a lot of powerful cards, but again, not cards that just go in anywhere. You, you have to, to figure out the context for them. And so it creates this more level playing field where you can show up with a new idea and it can go toe-to-toe with the stuff that the other decks are doing in a way that I, I don't think is possible 
I think it used to be more possible in modern is increasingly less so. Um, and then whatever it is you enjoy doing, you know, we mentioned uh, various aggro decks, various tempo is kind of a nebulous term, right? But however you define tempo, there's spirits, there's these aggro decks. Uh, Heroic is kind of this aggro combo deck, kind of. You have pure combo, you have uh, Winota, which uh, again, another deck we hadn't even touched on yet, but that's a, a popular deck, which is, it's kind of a combo deck, but it's kind of like a play to the board deck at the same time. Um, Phoenix is pretty multifaceted and can play out in a bunch of different ways. Um, you know, the the sacrifice decks are like building this engine. You have pure control. You have five-color Niv-Mizzet used to be the best deck in the format. Just recently, uh, in the most recent PTQ, I played the a new list of the five-color five, of the five, five uh, Fires of Invention Enigmatic Incarnation deck, where you're like sacrificing enchantments to tutor up creatures. And so you have these like two separate toolboxes going along at the same time. And that deck was really cool. And then someone took my list and tweaked it a bit and then won the challenge, the most recent Pioneer Challenge uh, this weekend. Uh, so there's just so much different stuff going on. And it feels like the format is ripe for more exploration. And then that exploration is more fruitful because what you're doing can compete more easily. It's not just boxed out automatically by the best cards, the best threats and the best answers from both the past 20 years in Modern's case and then also the past year of cards in the case of like Throne of Eldraine, MH2 and so on. And th- that is, I think, one of the more abstract appeals of Pioneer, just as a closing thought here, is um, it feels more authentic than a lot of the other big constructed formats at the moment, where for for Standard or Alchemy, it's hard for those to have this identity over time because they're always refreshing themselves and rotating. And that's that's part of the core concept. And then for the larger formats... Uh, where cards are being injected into them, especially in Historic's case, where like that's that's all the format is, basically, is just cards that have been parachuted in and, and get to wreak havoc. But then even in Modern, you hear people joke about the format as being a Modern Horizons block constructed, basically. And it's there's some truth to that, frankly. Um, with Pioneer, there's none of that. It's These are the cards that are printed in the normal sets, and you get to play with them. And you get to see what context they shine in. And there's no, uh, you know, obvious thing which just gets imported in and blows the whole format up uh, and, you know, deprives it of the identity it had before. All right, Dom. I think we we did have a little bit of a glitch. So I'm, I'm, I know basically what you said. And I think the question I have to follow up on that is if this is kind of what Watsi has in mind for magic or at least this particular style of magic like what do you think they want out of pioneer in the near term and by near term i mean maybe six to twelve months like do you think there's a future of pioneer that watsi is behind and that players are behind yeah i think pioneer fills a necessary role for magic's long-term development where the idea of standard uh when uh we, we spoke to Tom Lapilli on Dominaria's Judgment, who was someone who had worked, you know, inside R and D for for many years, he said that whenever he spoke to people from other game design companies, the idea of standard always seemed like such an aberration. It's like, wait, you you can add players to do that? You you get them to just buy new cards for a rotating format like every few months? Like that is not a system that you can easily convince people to do. And what we've seen over the past few years where the quality of standard has suffered 
and the organized play system, the, the scaffolding there, the support standard has suffered is now no one really plays standard, at least in paper. Um, you can play on arena because that's kind of what they induce you to play. Um, but there's no real enthusiasm out there for playing standard. Um, so what you want is ideally a non-rotating format that is that, that allows people to invest knowing that that investment will retain some of its value over time. Given that people have cards that they use yet for standard, you want a venue where they can use those effectively. And the barrier to entry is so high in modern that a lot of those cards just are never going to see the light of day. Whereas for all the reasons I got into, that is more realistic. I think Pioneer has a role for paper play as the entry-level constructed format, basically, where you can kind of do whatever you want. Uh, there's a lot of room to explore. You can buy in gradually and like, the the standard deck that you've upgraded for Pioneer is at least seemingly competitive, whereas you take that to a modern FNM and you'll just get annihilated. Um, I think it has this really unique and valuable role to play, and I think they recognize that, because even though, you know, the Pioneer launch basically got off to the worst possible start, where the timing was awful with Throne of Drain and those cards taking over every format, and then you had COVID, meaning that no paper format was going to get momentum anymore, and they had plans to put Pioneer on Arena, but those are officially shelved indefinitely. Um, so Pioneer had to struggle through so much, but I think now that paper play is, you know, in the medium term going to be hopefully coming back again in some form, I think Pioneer is a necessary part of that because you have modern and people love modern and it's great for what it is, but it is, it is a daunting prospect, both financially uh, in terms of just the institutional memory of the format and everything else. And Pioneer is the thing where if you're trying to introduce someone new to Paper Magic for Constructed, I think this is where you point them. And I think that's where it needs to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, the previous Pioneer plans for Arena, because when they announced that that was no longer happening, that really felt like a bait and switch, I think, to myself and other players, because having that type of non-rotating format on this new flagship product that didn't necessarily have Watsy's heavy hand the way that Modern Horizons or now Historic does with just the ability to inject cards through an external system that isn't, you know, the the natural churn that standard sets provide. You know, having that on Arena through Pioneer was really appealing. And that's the type of environment that I think, you know, I said that playing Moto on Pioneer I didn't see a lot of decks that really captured my imagination. That would be a very different feeling, I think, on Arena because of the way that economy works. You're kind of just like bought into something and it makes it a little easier to invest in a deck, keep it going as you naturally accrue wild cards and keep it up to date and sort of become a deck master, maybe picking up a new deck here or there over time. And hopefully, especially if the format continues to grown popularity as it's very clearly done in the last like what is it six months now maybe not even quite that long but there's a lot of heat behind it it's one of the reasons why we're talking about it today is because everyone seems to be talking about it right now at least a lot of the people we listen to it makes me feel like maybe there's another chance that it gets to arena and i can actually play pioneer on my phone on the toilet which is where i do like so much magic these days and really a lot of my best gaming in general 
All right. Really fun conversation. I, I'm glad that we got to revisit this, what feels like old format and, and dust it off a little bit. And I'm, I'm glad to see that not just Dom, but so many of my co-hosts are apparently really interested in it. And who knows, maybe it'll continue to grow and flourish over time. Before we go, though, I want to take a few minutes to actually talk about Dom, because normally when we have a guest on, we'll do that at the beginning of an episode and introduce this person and and maybe tell people why we have them on and maybe why they should actually listen to our guests speak and have their opinions, you know, broadcast. But I kind of think that, Dom, you're a person who didn't really need a lot of introduction to begin with. You know, you have Dominaria's Judgment, you write for SCG, you're a very well-known competitor. And having you on here, just I'm constantly amazed that your seeming encyclopedic knowledge of like the last 20 years of constructed Magic the Gathering. How long have you actually been playing for? And like, what do you not play? Because I see your results in like every constructed format down to, I want to say, vintage on on Goldfish. Like, are you just full-time Magic and anything goes? So I've I've been playing just in in general. Uh, I've been playing Magic since uh, 2005. Uh, Saviors of Kamigawa was actually the first spoiler season that I uh, endured fully. And so if you survive that and you're still a Magic player, then... You know, you're hooked for life at that point because it's only uphill from there. Um, and so I was, you know, excited, but also a little trepidatious about the upcoming Kamigawa set because, like, this is the most nostalgia it could possibly activate for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been following the game in a competitive context for all of that time and just absorbing a lot of content. You know, I back in the day, I read all the art on SUG and catch up on the forum in the 20 minutes before I went to school and sometimes it'd be a little late for school, but you, you could do that back then because the scope of magic was so much smaller in one sense. There were so many fewer formats, so much less content, many fewer ways to play. Now all of that has ballooned to the point where you basically can't play everything or focus on everything in a ton of detail. And so you kind of have to pick and choose. Um, so I basically play all the constructed formats that are on Magic Online, except for Pauper, which I, I haven't really dabbled in. Um, but, you know, I don't really play Limited. Um, I, I love Cube and think a lot of Cube. Like that's, I think a lot about Cube. That's probably where most of my mental energy devoted to Magic actually goes these days. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so I, I don't play everything. like follow everything, basically. You know, I'll, even if it's not a format that at the moment or need to play for a tournament or something... If there's interesting content, I'll consume it because I just I love doing that, and that that passion has not died over more than fifteen years now. It's amazing, and you know, you the listener can absorb some of Dom's passion as well because Dom is a coach. There's a website called Metified, and that's how Dom and I met. Dom has coached me a few times and has made me a little better at Magic against all odds. And and I think that's something that people should should know about Dom as well. Like you get to really reap a lot of the benefits of all that knowledge and experience too. And also, I think Dom's really good at making everyone better at magic out there. Dom, you and Ari Lax have run the other Modern Magic: The Gathering podcast, Dominaria's Judgment, for quite some time now, right? And I think it's it's one of the best magic podcasts going right now. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, going on, I think this will be episode forty when I record with him uh, tomorrow. 
Uh, so yeah, just all of the big picture stuff going on in modern, uh, and you know, every spoiler season is kind of interesting in the modern context, and uh, just really unpacking those trends in in raw detail, and then also going over some of the the weirdest and wackiest stuff that shows up in the five O League deckless dumps, or sometimes even in the actual serious tournaments themselves. Episode forty: These young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed babies. When we did episode 40, it was called Modern Sideboarding Going from Good to Great. <laughs> you just had that on tap. <laughs> that was that, that was 40. Wow. But no, but thanks thanks a ton for coming on. Um, uh, we truly appreciate it. And uh, for all the work that you do giving uh, back to the Magic community through all your content. Well, yeah. I mean, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, you guys are in here in the trenches week in, week out for... Uh, what what is it? One hundred and fifty nine, one hundred fifty seven weeks now. <laughs> you know, going strong. So uh, yeah, keep up the good work, and uh, you know, there, there, there's room in the year for more than one modern podcast. You know, we don't don't have to be at each other's throats so. here. Oh no! I mean, there's so many. We've got the the Faithless Brewing. We've got Turn One Thoughtsies. We have uh, Serum Visions. Serum Visions. Yeah, there's so many great pods out there. Dom, where can people find you online? What are all the links? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at uh, Dominhavia. Um, pun on my name, which I guess you know the novelty has worn off at this point, but not going to change it. So, so there it is. Um, and then if you go there, there's a tree link that takes you to all of the links for uh, the coaching uh, page that you mentioned, as well as uh, you know, articles, uh, very sporadic, you know, YouTube content and, and so on and uh, other stuff like that. Awesome. We'll, we'll include a link to the link tree as well, just so that people can have an easier time finding you. Thank you again, Dom. Real pleasure to have you on and to chat about, you know, something other than my egregious misplays. Excited to see where Dominaria's judgment goes moving forward and always rooting for you as you compete. I'm sorry you didn't take down today's modern challenge but maybe next week you'll figure you'll figure out the right lines with amulet titan once and for all still uh an ongoing struggle after you know six plus years of playing the deck at this point you'll get there one day that does wrap up this week's show if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the dive down you can tweet us at the dive down all one word or email thedivedown at gmail.com. You can also leave an audio message that might appear on a future episode of the show over at podinbox.com slash thedivedown. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. You can also support us while playing Magic with a Mana Trader subscription. Use promo code thedivedown2022, all one word. Get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic online cards. You can also use promo code the Dive Down 2022 when you order from Barrister and Man and get 15% off your first order on hair care, grooming, shaving products, and the like. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and win at Pioneer!